I want you to turn this morning to actually 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and we're going to be looking at some verses in that chapter, and I want you to get familiar with it because it really lays a foundation for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and for this point in the history of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. When I was pastoring years ago up in eastern Canada, there was a man that came to our church, an older gentleman, and he um, was an encouragement to me over the years. But one thing that he had on his heart and that he expressed to me, something that I didn't really understand the way uh, I hope, hopefully I do now, was the preeminence of Christ in worship in our services. And I ended up doing that man's funeral several years later. But looking back, I really didn't get everything at that point. God continued to work on me to show me how important it was that Christ be the center of everything that we do. When we look at Nehemiah, we're going to see as we go through this book, it's about Christ. The Old Testament is about Christ. It's all about him. It points ahead to him and his coming. And the more I study, even this week I was reminded, the more I study in the New Testament, the more it becomes obvious how important those Old Testament scriptures are. I really can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old. And so what a joy it is to get back into the Old Testament again. We need both. And so I really appreciate this church moving back and forth between New Testament books and then Old Testament books. We have a chart up, and so hopefully you can see enough of that. Maybe not. Uh, if you start at the bottom, I think it's the left. With Genesis, you can move chronologically from left to right. Uh, then you come up to the next section and move from left to right again. And that's the section that we're focusing on today. If you can't see it, I'm sorry. I'll be glad to email it to anybody. I found it online. I'll be glad to email it. But the two top sections is really showing where particular books and prophets and uh, poetic books fit into that timeline. And so it points us down into those sections. And so Hopefully you can see that. If not, I think you'll get the gist of it from what I'm about to say. Now, going back and again, reminding you of the historical setting. I tell you what, let's go to the Lord in prayer before I do that. Father, thank you that we can call upon your holy name. For you are indeed worthy to be praised. God, we recognize our condition. We're sinning saints, those of us that are in Christ. We sometimes fail. We're not perfect in this life. But God, you choose to use us in spite of ourselves. So God, may we, because of your grace and mercy, may we be holy in our lives, the way we live. May we exalt your name and may we proclaim you. May this message be all about you today and not anybody else. 
receiving any glory other than you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, going back to the historical setting, prior to about 1050 B.C., the 12 tribes of Israel were united in a theocracy. In other words, they were God-ruled. But they demanded a king like the other nations. They looked around them and they saw the other nations that had earthly kings and they said, we want a king too. So God, in his ultimate wisdom, gave them Saul. That's really interesting, isn't it? God gave them Saul. And the kingdom remained united through Saul, David, and Solomon. But God, at one point, had actually promised judgment on Israel for the sins of its leaders. Because all three of these men, even though they were used by God, David loved God with all his heart, they still had their sin. God promised sin on the nation of Israel. So after Solomon's son took the throne, Rehoboam, he became king in about 930 B.C. He refused, the people were tired of taxes. He refused to relieve the people of overbearing taxes. So the ten northern tribes separated. And Jeroboam took the leadership of those tribes. Even after God divided the kingdom, the Israelites and their leaders continued to rebel against God and his commandments, his covenant. God warned both kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, over and over through his prophets. God sent Elijah, Elisha, Amos, and Judah to northern Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And they continued to go their own way. They continued to deny God's commandments and obey him. So in 722 BC, they were conquered by the Assyrians, taken into captivity, never to return to Israel, never again. Now, knowing this, you would think that the southern tribes would begin to look to God, to obey his commandments and trust in him. But they did not. They still did not repent. So God sent Obadiah, Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Huldah, the prophetess, Nahum, and Habakkuk to the kingdom of Judah. All of these men warning them about their disobedience, about refusing to obey God's commands, refusing to trust in him. They refused to listen. Now, in 2 Chronicles 36, Ezra, written by, I believe, Ezra as well as the book of Ezra, and possibly the book of Nehemiah written by Ezra. But Ezra describes the setting of the fall of Judah. That's what's going to take place. That's what had taken place by the time we get to Nehemiah. Actually, we're uh, 70... 80, probably about 80 some or 90 some years after the first deportation. So after the first deportation in 606 BC, and that's when Daniel was taken, by the way, King Nebuchadnezzar made Zedekiah king of Judah. But after Zedekiah refused to submit to God and to King Nebuchadnezzar, he was taken into exile 
into Judah. He would not listen. He would not. God was actually trying to work through Nebuchadnezzar in the life of Zedekiah, but he would not listen. He was taken captive in 597 B.C. Ezra said, <coughs> excuse me. Ezra said concerning Zedekiah, 2 Chronicles 36, look at verse 12. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. Look at verse 13. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord. He continues, verse 14. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were unfaithful following all the abominations of the of the can't get it out following all the abominations of the nations and they defile the house of the lord which he had sanctified set apart in jerusalem but even in spite of this god was gracious he at this point was sending prophet after prophet in particular jeremiah verse 15 look at what it says the lord the god of their fathers sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. You see God in his grace and his mercy here. He's reaching out to the nation of Judah, to this kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. He's reaching out to them. He's calling them to repentance through his prophets, but they would not listen. So according to Second Chronicles chapter 36, the Jews hardened their hearts against God. They followed after the abomination of the surrounding nations, disobeying God's covenant. They defiled the house of the Lord. They mocked the prophets of God and despised their words. And for 490 years, they refused to give the land its Sabbath rest. 490 years without that, once every seven years, the land resting as God had commanded. But God had made it perfectly clear. If you obey my laws, I will bless you. If you break my laws, I will curse you. God had called his people to repentance through the prophets. Yet there was no repentance. So God brought judgment. And that's exactly what happened. There were three deportations to Babylon. But it culminated in 586 B.C. when the majority of people were taken to Babylon. That's when the city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the walls of the city were all destroyed. There had been two deportations prior to that. The first one began the exile, 606 B.C. That's when um, the royal court was taken including Daniel. That's when Daniel was taken to Babylon. In 597, when Zedekiah was taken, Ezekiel was also taken, and about 3,000 others. But God had promised that after 70 years of exile, beginning in 606 B.C., that he would return them back to the land. And that's exactly what God did. In spite of the fact that they hadn't really repented, in spite of the fact of their sin, God said, I'm going to bring you back to the land. So in 537 B.C., 
20,000 men, not including their wives or their children, under Zerubbabel, came back to the land of Judah. It was the Persian king Cyrus at that point that God used. Cyrus and his armies had taken over Babylon, and God used him in amazing ways. In 458 B.C., that's what Jonathan was talking about with Ezra, about 1,800 men, plus their wives and children once again, including the Levites at this point, returned under Artaxerxes. And the same thing is true in 444. When Nehemiah goes back, it was Artaxerxes. Do you know who? Ar I, I didn't know this till about a week ago, a week and a half ago. Artaxerxes was the stepson of Esther. God used Esther once again. What an amazing, how God works through history to fulfill his will in spite of the sins of his people. It's, it's just amazing at how God worked. But in 444 B.C., a few craftsmen, many didn't want to return, but craftsmen went back with Nehemiah to build a wall. Last week, we saw that Nehemiah had gotten word from his brother Hanani and other men from Judah about the condition of Jerusalem and the people there. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now that's the setting that we were talking about last week. But for a moment now, I want us to talk about Nehemiah the man. Jonathan brought out about his name meaning comfort. It's Nakam Yah. You know what Yah is. Yah is short for Yahweh. Nakam Yah, comfort Yah, or Yah comforts. That's what his name meant. And he was a man of comfort. It's been said of Nehemiah that he was a balanced man. He was sorrowful, and we see that in the next verse, verse 4. But he was a joyful man. He was predominantly known for his joy. You know, it was Nehemiah in chapter 8 that said, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. He was known for joy. He was prayerful, as we see several times in the book of Nehemiah. But he was also a practical man. He knew how to work with God's people. He had the ability to lead. He came along beside them. He encouraged them. When he talked about the work, he always referred to that work with we. It's what we did. It wasn't me. It wasn't I. It was we. He knew how to rally people for God's purposes, to serve God. That's what he did. He was tender yet tough. And this is interesting. But I read this. It was said of Ezra that he would pull out his own hair. But it's said of Nehemiah, he would pull out other people's hair. And I like that. Why? Not <laughs> because he spoke for God. He spoke with authority. He warned God's people with authority. He held them accountable. He spoke the truth. He never gave up on God's people, but he encouraged and motivated and even commanded them. Yes, maybe in one sense he pulled other people's hair out. He was an authoritative 
biblically, I believe, an authoritative man. He also knew God's word and trusted his promises. He quotes God's word over and over in his prayers. His sorrow over the sins of his people assumed an understanding of knowing God's word and its implications. He was a man of the word of God. He knew God's promises. He knew the text. He was a man of faith. He trusted God to give him favor before King Artaxerxes. He saw God as holy and demanded the holiness of God's people. He prayed to a personable God. Listen to his words. My God had been favorable to me. My God. Think upon me, my God, for good. And my God put it into my heart, he said. Remember me, oh my God. He prayed, he knew, he trusted a personal God. He had a personal relationship with him. With those thoughts in mind, let's look at Nehemiah's response once again to the situation of the Jews and the city of Israel. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, listen to what he says. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He mourned over the condition of the city of Jerusalem and its people. The walls were in ruins. The Jewish people who had returned to Jerusalem by this point, many of them at least, had no protection. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the walls in 586 B.C. According to Ezra, there had been an attempt to rebuild the wall, but it had been unsuccessful. So the walls were still unbuilt. The gates were in ruin. The city lay unprotected. Besides the lack of fortification, there were enemies surrounding the city of Jerusalem. When the Jews were taken into captivity from 606 to 586 B.C., there were some Jewish people that remained in the land. Somehow they escaped and they remained in, in the land of Palestine. So guess what they did? They married Gentiles. That's where the Samaritans came from. And these Samaritans hated the Jews. They didn't want them coming back to the land. They didn't want them having that power base, so to speak, in the city of Jerusalem. They hated them and they fought against them. They did everything they could to keep Nehemiah from rebuilding the wall. They actually mocked him. When he started building the wall, you know what they said? They said, if a fox jumps on that wall, it'll fall down. They were making light of what Nehemiah was doing and God's plan for the city of Jerusalem. But there were also Arabs, uh, Ammonites, Ashdodites in the area, and probably other groups as well. But those were some of the predominant groups that fought against the city, that threatened the security of Jerusalem once they came back to the city. Now, Sorry about that. I lost my place. So why was Nehemiah so grieved? That's the question I want us to talk about this morning. Why was he so grieved? Yes, he cared about the people of Judah to whom God had made specific promises. They were the chosen people of God. They were his kinsmen. 
and they were suffering. They were threatened by the surrounding peoples. They were not protected. They were indeed threatened. They were in danger, so to speak. He cared about those people. But the fact that they were not resting securely in the land, I would suggest to you this morning, was a symptom. A symptom of their sin. The evidence of God's righteous judgment. King David equated security of Jerusalem with God's favor. I never realized that before. Listen to David's prayer. When he's confessing in Psalm 51 his sin, he says, By your favor, do good to Zion. Speaking to God. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. He equated security of Jerusalem with God's favor. They had been, the people in Nehemiah's day had been scattered because of their sin. Israel, the kingdom of Israel to Assyria, and the kingdom of Judah to Babylon. God had clearly warned them. Actually, it's prayer in chapter 1, verse 8. Nehemiah quotes God's warning from Leviticus chapter 26, verses 1 through 31. Listen to the words from Leviticus. I will lay waste, God says, your cities as well. I will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and I will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your city becomes waste. That's the prophecy in the book of Leviticus. That's what God had said, and that's what Nehemiah quotes from in chapter 1, verse 8. Not only had their sin led to captivity in Babylon, folks, these people, God's people, had continued in sin. All you have to do is read through Ezra and Nehemiah to see the sins of God's people. It's not like they had come to full repentance. It's not that like that they were obeying God's commandments and trusting in him. They were still in sin, and Nehemiah was grieved. So Nehemiah confesses his sins and the sins of the people. Look at verse 6. Let your ear now be attentive, and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. He took personal responsibility for his own sins and the sins of his people. Notice the sins were against God. We have sinned against you. And that's an important point. The sin of Judah, the sin of Israel, all their sins was an offense to God. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinance which you commanded your servants, Moses. The words in the Hebrew here, acted very corruptly, again, against you. It means to deal corruptly in a way that causes offense. It 
causes offense, in this case, against God. So it's acting corruptly in a manner that offends the God of heaven. That's what they were doing. That is what Nehemiah is bringing out here. So Nehemiah mourned because God was offended. Yes, he was mourning because of their sins. He was mourning because the people were suffering. But he was mourning because God himself was offended. And he makes that perfectly clear. Before Judah was exiled, Isaiah cried out for Judah to repent. In chapter 59, Isaiah 59, 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God is a holy God. And he demands holiness from his people. But would you believe there's even more here? Nehemiah knew God's promises and he believed that God would fulfill them. In verse 9, he quotes from two chapters in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12 and chapter 30. And in verse 9, he says this, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens. I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. To cause my name to dwell. Nehemiah knew the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew this Yahweh, the eternal self-existent one. He knew the Holy One of Israel. He knew that his name was above all names. And he knew that through God's people, God desired and would cause his name to dwell among them. His name to be exalted among them. These descendants of Abraham were to point the nations to the one whose name is worthy to be praised. God said through Isaiah, I will also make a light Make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6. Although God had brought many Jews back to the land, the Jews were not being a testimony as they should to the name of their great God. They were certainly not a light to the Gentiles as God intended. Only in the sense that God kept his word to judge his people. And only in the sense that God had returned them to the land, would God's nation be or would be praised among the other nations. When Nehemiah led the people to repent and confess their sins, later on in chapter 9, and we'll look at this later, the people cried out, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. See, that was the intent of Israel. This wasn't so much about the people of Israel. It was about the name of the God of Israel. The purpose of God's people is, exalt, is to exalt the name of the Lord. That's our purpose today. That we would exalt Him, not ourselves. Not promoting ourselves and lifting ourselves up, but exalting Him. 
Yes, they were in sin. Yes, they were suffering, even though God had brought them back to the land. But the name of the God of Israel was to be exalted through his people. That was God's purpose. That was God's plan. Asaph lamented over the destruction of Israel in his prophecy of the coming event. And he says this in Psalm 79. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. You know, God takes a miserable sinner like you and me. And he regenerates us. He changes us for his name. It's for his glory that he saves lost souls. It's for his glory that God works in spite of us. In Ezekiel's prophecy concerning Israel, concerning Israel's restoration to the Holy Land, Ezekiel declares, Ezekiel chapter 30, 36, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, and I will prove myself holy among you in their sight. See, it's about his name. It's about worshiping him and exalting him and people to him. It's not about us. We are nothing but sinners saved by grace. What is our heart like? What is our purpose? What is our desire? It should be that he's exalted in everything. Every child of the king. His purpose and her purpose should be to exalt the king's name. David declared, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. You know what's interesting? After the flood in Genesis 11, when the people rebelled against God, they came together. The scripture says in chapter 11, verse 4 of Genesis, Come, let us build for, our, build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. That's rebellion against God to the ultimate. It was all about them, and not about the one that created them. They gave them life. Yes, our heart should be to glorify God. To exalt him. Just as Nehemiah had a heart to see God's kingdom in its fullness and God's name exalted, we must desire to see the same thing through the church. God's kingdom today. God's kingdom in its glory. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. On the road to Emmaus, when disciples spoke to Jesus about Jesus, who had been crucified, they said, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. See, they were looking for a Messiah, but they were looking for a Messiah to redeem Israel from the tyranny of Rome in that case, the tyranny of many, many years of the Gentile people. That's the kind of Messiah they were looking for. They weren't looking for a Messiah 
that would come and suffer, the suffering servant that would come and suffer and bleed and die and establish a spiritual kingdom. That's precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ did at his first coming. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's within you. Those who have the spirit of God with them today, within the, them today, have the king. We're in the kingdom. We are a part of a spiritual heavenly kingdom. Nehemiah included himself and confessed the sins of his people. You know, there's a movement today that teaches repentance as simply admitting that we're sinners. But the scriptures teach something completely different. You see, we need to repent just like the children of Israel and Nehemiah needed to repent. In Isaiah's prophecy concerning the coming of the suffering servant and the new covenant, he said this, let the wicked, this is prophecy about today and the gospel. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Timothy wrote, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That word depart is a once for all abstaining oneself or to abstain oneself from it means. It implies to instigate a revolt. We're to revolt against sin. It's not that we'll ever obtain in this life, but our hearts change when we're born again. Keep in mind, we cannot repent of our own accord. It is God that grants repentance, not we ourselves. We can't turn over a new leaf. We cannot change in and of ourselves. We look to him who changes the heart of a sinful man. And only by his grace can that happen. Remember Hebrews 12? We've not come to Mount Sinai, a mountain of fear and trembling, a place where God gave the law demanding perfect obedience rather we've come to mount zion the heavenly jerusalem the city of god we have joined myriads of angels and old testament saints in celebration of god and of the lord jesus christ yeshua god saves the mediator of the new covenant in light of the satisfying sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins that we have in him and the new hearts God has given us, whereby, why we, whereby we can please God, may we, in response to God's grace and mercy today, repent of our sins. May we look to God who has mercy upon all who call upon him. The people of Israel, under David and Solomon in particular, probably thought they were living in the greatest time in history. But due to their sins, the nation was divided and eventually scattered. Can I suggest something different? I believe we're today living in the greatest time in world history. The Ma Messiah has come. 
And his death by the shedding of blood actually took away sin. We're not offering the blood of bulls and goats anymore that could never take away sin. Jesus Christ came one time and sat down at the right hand of God. He paid the price. Our sins have been dealt with. But not only that, we are in the new covenant where God promised new hearts whereby we can, as a habit of life, please him. The Spirit of God lives in the heart of every true believer. The Spirit of God lives in the midst of the church. The Bible also teaches in the New Testament. Folks, we're living in the greatest day of earth history, right? This is the day. This is the time that the prophets prophesied about. They looked forward to when the Messiah would come and institute the new covenant. And people could really be forgiven of their sins. That's today. We don't have to wait. Yes, we look forward to the second coming of Christ, but he has come and he has given us life in his son. Look to him. Crowd in mercy to him. Can I suggest that the visible church, not every true believer, but the visible church is just like Israel today. It's made up of the elect and unbelievers, sheep and goats, wheat and tares. It's filled with false teachers who refuse to believe, obey, and preach the word of God. True believers in those churches lay unprotected, just like Judah was unprotected. Unprotected from the enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's sin in the midst of the visible church. There's rebellion against God. Folks, this should break our hearts, what's happening today. Just like it did in Nehemiah's heart. When we look at the church today, it's in a sad state as far as the visible church. But we should also believe God's promise. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Folks, God's real church, made up of every true believer, is the work of God. It is successful. God is building his church. Even though we might look around and see all these problems in the professing church today, God is building his true church. And those who are truly born again, every one of us, are a part of that church. But let's bring this down to an even more personal level. Here at Cornerstone, God has blessed us. He's given us elders who believe, preach, and live a Christ-centered gospel. And they're seeking to move forward. They're seeking the best for our church. They've listened to the body Recognize the need to install another elder. They've asked us to fast and pray to seek God's face. The Bible says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. This is indeed a time that we all should seek God's face. At the same time, let's be honest. Those of us here at Cornerstone have
have sometimes failed. We failed as a church. We failed to pray for and support our elders as we should. We failed to do our part. Sometimes depending on the elders to do the work. We failed to pray for one another as we should. To love one another. To serve one another in the body. Sometimes we fail to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The opportunities God has given us. We fail to support those that have the gift of evangelism. Sometimes we fail to lead our families as we should. Not teaching our children the life-changing word of the living God. We fail to love God with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. Failed to love our neighbors as ourselves, And we all have failed to exalt the name of Christ, who is worthy to be praised. What does God call our failures? He calls them sin. James Wright writes, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. You know what? Every once in a while we need to just stop in every church and look at our own selves and be honest before God with our failures, our sin, and cry out to God for mercy that we might be used of Him, that we might exalt His name, making sure it's not about us, it's about Him. Is it about Him in your heart? Is it about the Lord in my heart? That's today what we must consider. And I challenge you with that today. Not in any condemning way, but looking at my own self first. Let's pray. Father, I give you praise, God, that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, as a church, we have failed to be used of you, to be the place where your name is exalted as it should be exalted, for you, again, are indeed worthy. God, help us to put you first in our lives, in our church. May we love one another. May we support our elders. May we, at this time of consideration, fast and pray and seek your face with all our hearts. And may you be glorified. May our lives be changed and may we be able to move forward in unity as a church. That you would be glorified, God. In Jesus' name.